Good morning, Redemption Gilbert. How are you doing out there? If you're not smiling right now, turn to your neighbor. You may have died because this is about the sweetest and cutest thing I've ever seen. My name is uh, Jeremy Olam. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm so honored to be able to be with you this morning and to lead us through our next section of Scripture. They're going to be working on a couple orders of business before we get there. The first one is we're actually hosting a meet and greet out on the patio near the commons uh, today. So if you're new to the church, newer to the church, or maybe you've been around and just haven't really connected with as many people as you'd like, today is an amazing opportunity for you to head out there. There's going to be pastors, elders, leaders, and all kinds of people from the church that would love to be able to meet you, shake your hand, and hear your story. It's a great way to start connecting here at the church. Uh, so make your way out there after service today. The second thing I wanted to talk to you about is that um, if you were here last week, you would have seen me on the video announcement, uh, and part of the announcement was telling you that me and my family were on a Make-A-Wish trip to Disney World last week, which is a really awesome thing to be able to do. Yep. Here's evidence that it actually happened. There's, uh, that's my family, my wife Rachel, my oldest son Asher, and our youngest son Beck, who was, it was his wish to get to go to Disney. And uh, on his 11th birthday, that morning, we woke up and they picked us up and whisked us off to Disney World. It was, we had a great week. Uh, if you can ever take a really expensive vacation where someone organizes everything and pays for it, I highly recommend it. You should try that sometime. I really do want to pump the Make-A-Wish Foundation. They do an incredible job. They literally take care of everything you can imagine. And if you've ever had the opportunity to go to a Disney park, you know it's kind of an overwhelming experience um, because there's lots of people and lines and all the things. They really laid out the red carpet for our family, and it was just a really great really great opportunity for us. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but they, the, the policy of the Make-A-Wish Foundation actually isn't only that the child gets their wishes come true, because actually I was there too. And uh, yeah, there, we have a lot of pictures of me with my mouth hanging open, like gawking at Star Wars things, but I was there. It was great. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our study in Isaiah. Uh, we're in Isaiah 54. If you have your Bible with you uh, or you have an app on your phone, I'd love for you to follow along with us. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, no problem. The text will be up here on the screen, uh, but we're going to work through the entirety of the chapter this morning, working through uh, Isaiah 54 in our series on the servant king. Before we get there, I want to show you one of my favorite pictures that I have in my life. Um, and here it is, which you might say, why is that one of your favorite pictures? Well, um, this is a photo of my grandfather before he died. No, my grandfather was not a combine tractor. Uh, he's, you can't actually really see him, but he's driving the combine. Uh, my wife, Rachel, and I grew up on the plains of North, eastern North Dakota, and I was born to... Uh, into a farming family. My grandfather was a farmer, and he farmed wheat and soybeans primarily uh, on the plains of North Dakota. And a few years after Rachel and I moved to Arizona, probably 20 years ago or so this was, we went back home to visit uh, during harvest season, and we popped over to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and I asked uh, what Grandpa was up to, and he said, well, actually, I, I need to run out because the conditions are perfect. We need to start the harvest. And so we said, can we come with? And we went out with him and I, we got photos. My grandpa's not really a photo shoot kind of guy. So this is as close as I could get to the photo shoot was like, you can take pictures while I drive by in the combine. So there it is. Uh, that's him right there. Why am I showing you this picture of my grandfather? Uh, my grandfather was what I call a first and a half generation immigrant, uh, which that's not technically a category, but it kind of explains his life. His parents 
Um, immigrated from Norway in the early 20th century, and with them, Grandpa's oldest siblings were actually born in Norway, and then they immigrated, but he was born here in the United States. Um, and through the Homestead Act and a few other things, uh, Grandpa's parents got some land and they started farming in rural North Dakota. And they had a large family, and when the, when the family farm was divided up among all the sons, there was actually very little farm to give each one of them. And my grandfather got one of those small chunks, 160 acres of farmland to farm in North Dakota. Growing up, uh, I thought my grandpa was one of the greatest people that I knew, but in looking at it as a 45-year-old man who's raising his own family, I realized some things about my grandfather now, one of which was he was nearly destitute his entire life. Uh, they, they farmed a very small piece of land uh, and survived from planting season to harvest season year after year after year, uh, including living in a used trailer that my grandparents bought and moved onto the farm so that they could live. But that never occurred to me because my grandfather was one of the most joyful men that I knew in my life. He had no money. He was from a nowhere's place doing nothing important with nobody to pay attention to him and nothing to leave to his family when it was all over. And yet what I knew of my grandfather when I think of him is the song in his heart. And I mean that very literally. One of the best gifts that my grandfather ever gave to me was a goofy reliance on songs to cheer up my household. My grandpa was singing all of the time. Usually it was Willie Nelson or Hank Williams Jr. or something along those lines. Uh, but he was whistling and singing all of the time as a child growing up. And I remember that about him, and it told me so much about the kind of man that he was. He was a joyful man. He was a happy man. And he was not happy because of his circumstances. He was happy because he knew Jesus. And he gave that inheritance to me. And today we're going to talk about the song of your heart and what does that look like for the people of God. I came across a quote this week from Eleanor Roosevelt who said, Happiness is not a goal, it's the byproduct of a life well lived. Although the American dream says that we have the right to the pursuit of happiness, if we take Eleanor Roosevelt at her word, and I think she's pretty wise in this, there's not actually something to be aiming at with happiness. It's not the actual goal, but that when we live a life well, happiness comes out of it. The question that we have to ask is, what does a life well lived look like? That's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. The text, as we enter into it in Isaiah 54, opens up with uh, the prophet Isaiah doing what he's been doing for many chapters now, which is giving poetic word to the relationship between Israel, who's in exile, and God, the Redeemer, who will save them. And he does that in this section by opening up, putting Israel in the role of a person and him God in the role of a person as well. And here's how it starts. It says, Sing, barren woman, who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than, than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And then you might say, what a weird thing to start with. And it is a little odd, I will admit. On a Sunday when we celebrate new life and birth in the 
room, it could be very easy, especially if you're a woman in the room who struggled with fertility or a family that struggled with fertility, that this is a very personal thing to you, and that's probably appropriate for you to feel. But we, what would be helpful for us to understand what God's trying to say to Israel is to understand the role of a wife in ancient Near Eastern culture. I came across this quote from an article called The Legal Status of Barren Wives in the Ancient Near East, everybody's favorite light reading, I'm sure. This is what it said. A barren wife represents a seemingly insurmountable obstacle to one of the primary functions of ancient Near Eastern marriage, to produce heirs capable of assisting with a substance, sub, I didn't have a problem reading that earlier today, subsistence and economic stability of the family. In other words, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the primary role of a wife in a marriage was to provide children and heirs, mainly so there would be someone to work the farm so the family could survive. And then as they got older, that there would be family to be able to care for the older people as they worked towards death. That was the role of a wife in primary terms in the ancient Near East. It was a factor of survival. It was, a, it was an issue of being able to provide the very thing that marriage was designed to do in that culture. And so when God addresses Israel and calls Israel the barren woman, what he, is, he is not talking about the inability to have children. He's talking about the inability for Israel to fulfill their role in the world. He's saying, Israel, you were given a task, a primary responsibility, and you have not been able to fulfill it. And that could lead you to sadness. That could lead you to despair. But what he's asking them to do is to sing and to have a heart of gladness in the face of this. How does that work? That's hopefully what we're going to be talking through today. He continues and he says, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. This is another kind of odd thing to give instruction about. Uh, this is not about when I go backpacking. Sometimes I have to get my tent into a very small area and you have to kind of like wedge yourself in there. It's really not directly about that. One of the primary responsibilities for women in ancient Near Eastern cultures was to be literal housemakers, housekeepers. They set up the tent. They organized the tent. They made sure that the home, which was a tent, was appropriate for the family, and that included if you were unable to provide children in your family, that meant that your tent, metaphorically and probably realistically, was downtrodden. It was small. It was unimpressive. And the instructions that God gives to Israel is it's time to spruce up the tent. It's time to strengthen the walls and to lengthen the cords. Make room. I'm going to fill your tent he continues, he says, you're going to need to do this because I am going to spread you out to the right and to the left and your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. It's a little bit of an ominous promise. Your descendants will dispossess cities and settle in their desolate, dispossess nations, settle in their desolate cities. It sounds like a threat that you would have made uh, to a rival king in the Middle Ages. And what God is saying is that this is what's going to happen to them. And you say, why would this be encouragement? Well, if you understand Israel's story and what's going on with them, this is actually describing what has happened to them. Here's a map for you, for your, you map fans. Get excited. 
what we have here is Assyria, which was one of the conquering nations. We have Babylon down here, which is another one. And we have Israel in this way. None of this matters. There will not be a test. But the red line and the green line, if you notice, the red line is moving from Israel out and the green line is moving from Babylon in. That is describing the reality of what happened to Israel when they were conquered by their neighbors. They were gathered out of their cities, out of their nation, and they were marched into their enemy's land. And they were forced to crowd into small areas that were not made for them. And then, to add insult to injury, the Babylonians in particular took a bunch of their people and moved them into the dispossessed nation, into the desolate cities. And they took up residence in the home, in the inheritance of Israel. And what God is saying is, don't you worry. I'm going to reverse this trend. In fact, no longer will you be the one that's being dispossessed. No longer will you be the one who leaves your cities desolate. In fact, you're going to be the ones dispossessing and moving into the desolate places. It's an encouragement to Israel that everything that you've experienced is going to turn around. In fact, he's emphasizing he has not forgotten their descendants. This word descendants uh, in Hebrew is the word zera, which is uh, probably more accurately translated seed. Uh, but it is a word that is a direct reference, a specific reference. The exact same word is used in Genesis in the earliest parts of our story of how God calls Israel when God goes to a man named Abram and his wife Sarah, who are barren, and he makes a promise that they will have many descendants and that they will take over the land. In fact, he says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your Zerah, your seed, your offspring, I will give this land. So when Isaiah is using this word, he is intentionally reminding Israel, I haven't forgotten. I remember the promise that I made. And although in your current situation and where you stand, it may feel like I've forgotten you. It may feel hard to believe that I still love you and that there is goodness to come, but don't forget, I have not forgotten Remember who I am and what I have said to you. He continues and he says, do not be afraid. You won't be put to shame. Don't fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of your youth and you will remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. He's saying, I will take care of you. I will keep you from harm. Anything that you have felt of disgrace and fear and this constant nagging belief that maybe we have lost our place in God's story, forget it. You will forget those things. You will forget the shame you've experienced, and I will take care of you. How will that happen? Well, God himself takes on the image of a person in the story as well. He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. You have been locked up and you have been left behind, but don't worry. God, the one who has made everything, is coming to get you. He's coming for rescue. He's coming to make you his again. This is so significant. It's significant for Israel and it's significant for us too because the reality of what Israel is experiencing is the difficulty of getting out of your current temporal circumstances to see the wider picture. 
This is what we experience as people all the time. It is very difficult for me to see beyond what I am currently experiencing or what has been in my recent past. We are encouraged, encouraged to be defined by what we have done and by what has been done to us. And because it feels so real, because it is right in front of us, it becomes very difficult for us to be able to process our lives with a reality that supersedes our reality. And yet that is what God is saying. You think that the Babylonians, you think the Assyrians, you think that King Cyrus are the real powers at play here. May you remember who is the one that is calling you his. I am the maker of all things. I am the God over all of the earth. That means that I am not only the God of those nations and those cities, and I am not only the God of you, I'm the God over history. I'm the God over time. I'm the God over everything. And I am coming for you. I did not forget. He says, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. Remember, in their culture, a young woman born into a family would have been primarily used to tie families together and build relationships and kin uh, treaties across clans and families. And that value that that young woman would have brought to the family that she went into was directly relying on how much she could provide in children and, and heirs to the new husband. And what God is saying is, you're just like the woman who was married young with lots of promise and now you're distressed because you feel like you haven't been able to fulfill your calling and you're being left on the side of the road. If you feel that way, don't worry, I'm calling you back. And I think that's a reality for us a lot of times. Maybe you have dreams for your life, things that you hoped of. As I take my 11-year-old son off to Disney World and I think about what the future of his life looks like, he has dreams. He tells me he wants to be a research scientist, but he's 11. What does he know? Not much. But there comes a day when either he has achieved those goals or he has not, or he's changed his plans or not. Maybe he planned to have a large family, maybe not. Maybe he thought someday he would be rich and have that water slide that took him from the second floor to the first floor of his mansion, <laughs> or not. That's the reality of our lives. They don't always play out the way we had hoped them to play out. And oftentimes that leaves us playing, feeling like we've been deserted and that we are distressed in our spirit and that we've been rejected by the God who seems to have so much promise for his people and yet my life doesn't look like the kind of life that reflects that promise. God describes what this looks like in the life of Israel as he continues. He says, for a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I'll bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face for you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. I love this because for so many chapters, including if you've heard me preach through this series, one of the things that's been emphasized in, in Isaiah all along is you think that I've been angry with you. You think I've abandoned you. You think I've turned away from you, but I haven't. And then here he gets in chapter 54 and he's like, okay, let's be honest. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. For just for a second, I turned away in anger. And what he's doing to Israel is reminding them of the fact that they have betrayed him 
And he has allowed this moment in their life. It has a purpose. It has an issue. And what he's demonstrating for us in humanizing himself. Remember, he's giving us an image of Israel as a person and God as a person. And he's taking on human traits to describe what is happening in the background. And what we see here is the anger of betrayal and the beauty of forgiveness. We have to remember that what humanity, and more acutely Israel, has done is taken the close, heartfelt relationship that God has with his people. And we have said to God, our maker, our creator, no thanks, we don't need your input. This is the story of the Garden of Eden. God hand makes and hand breathes life into Adam and Eve. And then very quickly, after they're given a charge to live their life, to be fruitful, to multiply, to bring God's blessing to the world, they say, you know what, there's probably a better way. We'll take your comments under advisement. And what that means is we really don't need your authority. We'd like to figure this out on our own. And then God restarts that experiment with Abram. And he says to Abram and Sarah, I will take you who have nothing, no land, no place, no children, and I will make you everything you ever dreamed and beyond. All I'm asking is that you submit yourself to me as your God and I will bring blessing into your life. And Israel rejects him and betrays him and walks away. And that describes every single one of us. God has given you the breath that you have, the blood that beats in your heart. And yet all of humanity at some point in our lives has said, no, thank you, God, I'll do it alone. I got this. I don't need you. And if we're going to humanize what that looks like, there is anger that comes with betrayal. When you have been betrayed, it makes you feel terrible. It builds anger and rage within us. And if there is something that I am good at, it's this. When I'm betrayed, it's easy for me to feel angry. It's easy for me to feel abandoned and like I want to walk away and I want to see justice come to the person who has betrayed me. That part is easy for us to relate with. The second part is very difficult. It's the beauty of forgiveness. Because God says, not only have you once again betrayed me, but I love you and I'm committed to you and I'll forgive you and I'm going to bring you back close. That part is incredibly difficult. In fact, I would say that one of the defining characteristics of what makes God different from humanity is his commitment to love in the face of rejection. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see God himself who is rejected and betrayed by his own people and he offers them forgiveness and love in return. C.S. Lewis says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is the stance that Christians, those of us who claim to follow Jesus, those of us who claim to be in the family of God, this is one of our defining marks. We have to be able to forgive the inexcusable, what has been done to us, what has been meted upon us, the injustice we've experienced. We need to be willing to forgive it because God has forgiven you for the inexcusable betrayal that you have offered to him. Humility means keeping in front of me what I have done to God and how he has loved me in the face of it and being willing to offer a taste of that forgiveness and kindness to my neighbor who also betrays and hurts me. That is a difficult 
call. And we are asked to look at our Father, the God who has made all things, for the demonstration of how it's done. Because he is demonstrating it for us. This is what he says. To me, God says, this is like the days of Noah. When I swore that the waters of Noah would never come again to cover the earth. Now, if, you're, if you haven't been around church much, maybe you're not familiar with the story of Noah. God, uh, early on in the story of the Bible, is very frustrated by the betrayal, violence, anger that's coming out of humanity. And he brings judgment in the form of the flood. You've probably heard of Noah and his ark. But after the flood is finished, he makes a promise to Noah and his family who are left behind. And he says, I won't do this again. And he says, to me, this momentary anger that I've shown towards Israel to wake you up out of your slumber won't happen again, just like Noah. He says, so I have sworn now not to be angry with you and never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains may be shaken and the hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor will my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This, for us, has to be an encouragement. And it's encouragement that comes with two pieces. The first one is a reminder that the world in which we live is a shaky place to exist. And everything that the world has encouraged us to put our feet upon is shaky at best. When the world says to you that the best way for you to have uh, fulfillment in this world is to fulfill your own dreams and your own hopes and your own reality, that's shaky ground. Or at least it is for me. If they say the best way to do this is to have a good family and uh, lots of children, that's shaky ground. If it's to have a great career and a great bank account and a really great neighborhood... If it's to make sure that power is consolidated politically in the hands of the people that you like and approve of. If it's to make sure that you're part of a church that's doing all the right things all the right time. All of those things are shaky ground. They might be going well for you now. And I'm happy for you. That's a great place to be. But I'm telling you, it's temporary. And for many of you in the room, you might be looking at your life and saying, I, you don't have to tell me it's shaky. I know my whole world is shaking around me right now. My spouse has left me. My kid is sick. I got a diagnosis. The end of my life is around the corner. I lost my job. I'm getting ready to lose my home. I was driving through an intersection and a truck hit me out of nowhere. And the rest of my life doesn't look like I thought it was going to. This is the reality of what life is like. Ground is shaky. And what it says, your world might be shaky, but his promise is solid ground. If you are looking for the world around you to be the place that you can get your feet settled, where everything can be right, where you can feel like you have control and safety and security, I'm telling you, you're lying to yourself if you think it's true, it's only a matter of time until it starts shaking underneath you. The only answer is to look to his promise, which never change, changes and sits outside of time and history and will be fulfilled. That's the answer. It's not to rely on building something else. Because this is the constant bait and switch that our culture and our world and our hearts participate in together. If this thing didn't do it for you, don't worry. There's something else that'll do it. Start chasing that one. That's a never-ending bait and switch. But his promise is simple because it does not rely on you to fulfill it. 
His promise is simple because his promise has nothing to do with your faithfulness. It has everything to do with his. That is the key. He changes the metaphor here and he begins to talk to Israel as a city. He says, afflicted city, lashed by storms, not comforted. I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, your walls precious stones. He says the city that was destroyed, Jerusalem essentially, will be one day rebuilt in a way that is so lavish and so ridiculous you can't even get your head around it. In fact, it's so lavish that I will use words that seem made up like lapis lazuli. (laughs) Honestly, most scholars don't actually know what that word is translated to be, so uh, there you go. It's some sort of a gem, it seems like. And if that sounds familiar to you, if you've been around the Bible uh, much in your life, you're right. Because when we go to the end of the story, Revelation chapter 21, let me tell you, here's what the Apostle John is given a vision of the end of time, how it's all going to end, how the story wraps up. It's this amazing gift that God has given to the church and his people. And here's what John says. One of the seven angels carried me away in the spirit, gave me a vision and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold. The foundations were decorated in every precious stone. Jasper and sapphire and agate and emerald and onyx and ruby and crystallite and beryl and topaz and turquoise and janseth and amethyst. And the gates were made of pearls, every gate made of a single pearl. The great city was of gold, as pure as translu- uh, transparent glass. Now you might say, like, that sounds like a fairly... Uh, inefficient city building process. And you're right, uh, I don't know what that city looks like. I don't know what kind of gate is made out of a single pearl. Doesn't seem very realistic. It's not attempting to describe the actual city. Here's what it's trying to tell us. And here's what God is enforcing to Israel in this section of Isaiah. The things that this world has told you to invest your life in at the end of days when I return and gather my people to me, they will be as worthless to me as building blocks. These will be the things that we use to build the city upon, not things we will rely upon in our lives. You're investing in things that one day will become nothing but construction materials in the kingdom of God. What are you doing? Why are you confused about where you should be investing your life? It is not in things like gold and emerald and sapphires because these things will become nothing. And it gets even better. Because he says this, all your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. I was preparing for this and I forgot that we were doing child dedications this morning. And then as I got here and we're talking through what the service is going to look like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so perfect. The beauty of this moment this morning is that each one of these parents, I'm looking at the Anderson sitting over here, I would love to encourage them to invest in their future. They need to invest in retirement. There's probably a great 529 plan. They should be investing for Felicity's education in the future. That's really good. See a financial advisor. Those things are really smart. We need to do those things. But the investment that they were making this morning is the one that actually matters. Standing here in front of this community of people and saying, we dedicate to investing in the inheritance that has already been secured for our child is something that cannot be undervalued. He says in this new world that is to come, God himself will teach 
your children and give them great peace. In righteousness, we will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. We'll have nothing to fear. Terror will be removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it won't be because of me. In fact, whoever attacks you will surrender to you. How does that work? Because I'm the one who created the blacksmith, and I'm the one who fans the coals into flames. I'm the one who forges weapons for their work, and I'm the one who created the destroyer that you're so afraid of. If you think the nations, if you think the armies, if you think the economic systems, if you think political strength are the things that need to be feared and kowtowed to, let me tell you, I'm the one that made them all. And no weapon formed against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, says the Lord. We got to camp on that for a second. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication. This is the reality of what it looks like to live submitted to God in our world. You will look foolish. We have to be honest about that. If you choose to invest your life on serving others rather than yourself, you will look like a fool to your neighbors. If you live a life of radical generosity that gives to the poor and cares for the stranger, you will look like a fool to your neighbors. If you speak out against injustice wherever you see it because it does not reflect the kingdom of God in this world, you will look like a fool to your neighbors. My grandfather died with nothing. He had just enough left to get my grandmother coasting into her death on duct tape and bailing wire and a cloud of dust. But he left an inheritance that cannot be measured in worldly terms. He left faith to me and to my family. This is the call for us. You can give your life away to the kingdom of God because he will vindicate you on the day of the Lord. He is coming and bringing his inheritance with him. This is our heritage. This is the thing that we get to give. This is not just a cute experiment up front where we have babies come up because it makes us all feel good, although it does do that. It's an acknowledgement that the true inheritance that the church has been given is not this building. It's not money. It's not a nation. It's the Lord and his vindication that is to come. And because of that, we are free to invest in our inheritance. Your life has been redeemed out of a shaky, meaningless existence, and you've been given freedom. And I mean this in the most true sense of the word, freedom. And the freedom that you've been offered is the freedom to give away everything in pursuit of the kingdom of God. You have been freed to not be caught up in concern about yourself or your future or your finances or your power or your influence. Instead, you've been given freedom to spend every one of those gifts that you've been given on behalf of another. That's the freedom of the kingdom. After all, who is going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He's the one. If you're looking to impress someone, if you're looking to prove it to someone, you should. His name is God. He's the one that justifies. He's going to determine the score at the end of your life. Not you, not your neighbors, not the economy. God. This is the freedom that we've been offered. Therefore, if Eleanor's right, 
If happiness is not a goal, it's a byproduct of a life well lived, then God, in this instruction to Israel, gives us a key to understanding what a well-lived life looks like. It's a life that's lived in, reality, in a reality that supersedes our temporal reality. It's a life that's given away to something that we cannot tangibly put our hands on today, but is sh- as sure as the house that you live in, as the streets you drive on. It's a kingdom that is to come that you've been given freedom to invest in, and out of that investment will come a song of your heart that sounds like happiness because it's not defined by the shakiness of the reality in which we live, by the circumstances in which you find yourself, by how much influence you have. You can sing a song of happiness while you combine your meager wheat field and provide for your family in the smallest way possible. I want to leave you with one last thing. I took this picture yesterday in my backyard. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, we moved into a new home about two years ago, kind of during the pandemic. And one of the things that our new house had was an orange tree in the backyard. When Rachel and I moved to Arizona 23 years ago, there was a lot of things I was looking forward to about Arizona. Most of all, lack of snow. Uh, But, you know... Cactuses and swimming pools were all nice things too. Nobody ever told me about one of the greatest gifts Arizona had to offer, which is the smell of orange blossoms in the spring. This is like happy time for Jeremy. Uh, Yesterday I was in my office and I was working on my sermon prep and my wife texts me in the morning from downstairs. She said, hey, if you have a minute, you should grab a cup of coffee and come sit out in the backyard with me. And so it didn't take long. I marched my way out there And the first thing that I smelled as I rounded the corner was a cloud of the smell of the orange blossoms in our backyard. Because it's time. It's that time when that smell is so needed in our community. I could just... I just love it. And then later in the day, after I'd kind of finished the bulk of my prep, I like to either go out for a long walk or a long bike ride to pray and think through the sermon. So I went out for a long bike ride. And every probably mile along the trail I was on, all of a sudden I would ride into a cloud of orange blossoms, the smell in the air. And the entire world would just drift away from me in that moment. I would almost steer off the road and I would begin to make obnoxious noises. That's what I sound like when I encounter this. I I didn't know where the orange blossoms were. I couldn't see where the trees were. I didn't know where it was coming from. I didn't know who to give thanks to other than God. And when I got home, I said, Rach, the tree in our backyard is so great, but I went on this ride, and like every 10 minutes, I would ride into this incredible cloud of happiness. And she said, oh, yeah, it's the fragrance of the kingdom. think that's right. Here's the call for us as a church that I want to put before you. I think that the freedom that we've been offered is to be able to live our lives in a way that benefits our community and our neighbor and brings the hope of the gospel wherever we go. And when we do that, it will be like the smell of orange blossoms everywhere that we go. And people, when they encounter you, don't know where it's coming from or who to thank for it, but they will experience the blessing of the fragrance of the kingdom in their lives. And I just cannot underemphasize the power 
that a community like ours living in this way in our neighborhoods just here around Gilbert and Chandler and Mesa and Tempe, if we all committed ourselves this week to being a fragrance of the kingdom wherever we go, we would bring joy and hope and happiness into our community and our own lives. This is the freedom that you've been offered. Invest in your inheritance and bring the fragrance of the kingdom wherever you go. Let's pray that God would help us to do that this morning. God, we thank you so much for the story of Israel that we hear recounted here in this text of Isaiah. God, thank you for the prophet and for his willingness to speak out about what was happening in his world and to his community and with his people. God, you have been faithful in the past and we presume upon your faithfulness in the future, you have never let us down. And we don't intend to believe that you start, you're going to start now. God, I thank you for the faithfulness you've showed to this church and this community. I thank you for the faithfulness we see in these families who have brought their children in front of us and said we intend to raise them in the ways of the Lord. God, give them strength. Give us strength to be a faithful witness in the lives of our community and in our neighborhoods and help us bring the fragrance of the kingdom wherever we go. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.